0: Chapter 5 of In the Pecos Country by Edward Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 The Apaches Are Coming. As soon as Lone Wolf was out of sight, young Munson stepped back in the shadow of the wood and quickly placed himself behind the trunk of a large tree. He had learned the nature of the Indian race too well for him to give this precious specimen any chance to circumvent him. Had he remained standing in the moonlit opening after the Apache entered the wood, the latter could not have had a better opportunity to pick him off without danger to himself. Had he meditated any such purpose, when he wheeled to fire the shot, there would have been no target visible. The strained ear of the lad could not detect the slightest rustling that might betray the whereabouts of the dreaded chief and Fred knew better than to expect any such advantage as that which just permitted to pass through his hands. But what would Lone Wolf do? This was the all-important question. Would he sneak off through the wood and out of the valley? And would he be seen and heard no more that night? Or would he return to revenge himself for the injury to his pride? Was he alone in the grove, or were there a half-dozen brother demons sulking among the undergrowth like so many rattlesnakes, except that they did not give any warning before striking their blow? Had any of them visited Mickey or Thompson, and was a general attack about to be made upon the settlement? Such questions as these surged through the mind of Fred as he stood leaning against the tree, rifle in hand, listening, looking, and thinking. Suddenly he gave utterance to a low whistle, which he was accustomed to use as a signal in communicating with Mickey, it was almost instantly answered, in a way which indicated that the Irishman was approaching. A minute later the two were together. The lad hastily related his stirring adventure with the great Apache war chief, and as may be imagined Mickey was dumbfounded. "'It's meself that hasn't seen or heard the least sign o' one of the spalpeens since the set of sun, and they've been about us all the time. How was it they got here without being seen? There be plenty of ways of doin' the same. They've found out that we were watchin' this pint, and so they slipped round and came the other way. "'Do you think they will attack us to-night?' "'I'm thinking they're only making observations, as me uncle observed when he was cotched in the house of Larry O'Mulligan, and they'll be down on us some time when everything is ready.' seems to me it's a poor time to make observations—in the night.' "'The red skin is like an owl,' replied Mickey. "'He can see much better at night than he can by day. But there's Thompson. Let's see whether some of the Spalpeens haven't made a call upon him in the darkness.' Be easy now in stepping over the leaves, for an Injun hears with his fingers and toes as well as his ears." The Hibernian led the way, each advancing with all the caution at his command, and using such stealth and deliberation in their movements, that some ten or fifteen minutes were consumed in passing over the intervening space. At last, however, the spot was reached, where they had bidden good-bye to their friend earlier in the evening. Here's about the place, said Mickey, looking about him. But it doesn't observe the gentleman by the token of which he must have strayed away. Hello he repeated the call in a low, cautious voice, but still loud enough to be heard a dozen yards or more from where he stood. But no response came, and although neither of the two gave any expression to it, yet they were sensible of a growing fear that this absence or silence of their friend had a most serious meaning. "'Yonder he is now,' suddenly exclaimed Fred. "'He's a great sentinel, too, for he's sound asleep.' The stalwart figure of Thompson was seen seated upon the ground with his back against a tree and his chin on his breast like one sunk in a deep slumber— the sentinel had seated himself on the edge of the grove, where all the trees and undergrowth were behind and the open space in front of him. At the time of doing so, no doubt, his figure was enveloped in the shadow, but since then the moon had climbed so high in the skies that its rays fell upon his entire person, and the instant the two chanced to glance in that direction they saw him with startling distinctness. Magara, if that doesn't bait the mischief—' exclaimed Mickey impatiently as he looked at his unconscious friend. "'I thought he was the gentleman that had travelled and knew all about these copper-coloured spalpeens. Suppose we all done the same. Lone Wolf and his Apaches would have had all our scalp locks hanging at their gordles by this time. I say, Thompson, ain't ye ashamed of yourself to be wasting your time in this fashion?' As he spoke, he stooped down— and seizing the arm of the man shook it quite hard several times, but without waking him. "'Begorrah, but he acts as if he hadn't had a week of sleep since he had emigrated to the west. I say, Thompson, me old boy, can't you rouse up and bid us good-night?' While Mickey was speaking in this jocose manner, he had again seized the man, but this time by the shoulder. At the first shake, The head of the man fell forward as if he were a wooden image knocked out of poise. The singularity of the move struck Mickey, who abruptly ceased his jests, raised the drooping head, and stooped down and peered into it. One quick searching glance told the terrible truth. "'Be the only powers, but he's dead,' gasped the horrified Irishman, starting back, then stooping still lower and hurriedly examined him. "'What killed him?' asked the terrified Fred, gazing upon the limp figure. "'Lone Wolf, the heathen, Blackguard. See here,' added Mickey in a stern voice as he wheeled about and faced his young friend, "'you told me you had your gun painted at that spalpeen. Now it's myself that wants to know why in blazes you didn't pull the trigger.' "'He hadn't hurt me, Mickey, and I didn't know that he'd been doing anything of this kind. Would you have shot him in my place?' The Irishman shook his head. It looked too cowardly to send a man, even though he was an Indian, out of the world without an instant's warning. "'Well, Thompson is done for, that's did sure. Then we'll have to give him a decent burial. Whisht! there! Did you not hear something?' Footsteps were heard very distinctly upon the leaves, and the two shrank back in the shadow of the wood and awaited their approach, for they were evidently coming that way. Something in the manner of walking betrayed their identity, and Mickey spoke. The prompt answer showed that they were the two men whose duty it was to relieve Thompson and the Irishman. They came forward at once, and when they learned the truth, were as a matter of course terribly shocked. They reported that the sentinels nearer the settlement had detected moving figures during the night skulking about the wood and valley, and the sound of horses' hoofs left no doubt that they were Indians. had gone. The death of Thompson, of course, was a terrible shock to the new arrivals, but it was one of the incidents of border life and was accepted as such. The two took their stations unflinchingly, and Mickey and Fred returned to the settlement, the body of the dead sentry being allowed to lie where it was under guard until morning. On the morrow, the body was given decent burial, and the building of the houses was pressed with all possible activity, and scouts and sentinels were stationed on all the prominent lookouts. Barnwell was confident that if no interruption came about within the next two or three days, he could put the defenses in such shape that they could resist the attack of any body of Indians, but an assault on that day or the next would be a most serious affair the issue of which was extremely doubtful, hence the necessity of pressing everything forward with the utmost dispatch. Fred rendered what assistance he could, but that did not amount to much, and as he possessed the best eyesight he took upon himself the duty of sentinel, taking his position near the river, where he remained for something over an hour. Nothing of an alarming character was seen, and thinking his standpoint was too depressed to give him the range of observation, he concluded to climb one of the trees. This was quickly done, and when he found himself in one of the topmost branches he was gratified with the result. On his right hand he could trace the winding course of the Rio Pecos for several miles, the banks here and there fringed with wood and stunted undergrowth. His attitude was such that he could see over the tops of the trees to his rear, and observe his friends busily at work as so many beavers while off on the left stretched on the prairies with the faint bluish outlines of mountains in the distance all at once the eye of the boy was arrested by the figure of a horseman in the west he was coming with the speed of a whirlwind and heading straight toward the settlement fred wondering what it could mean watched him with an intensity of interest that can scarcely be imagined at first He supposed him to be a fugitive fleeing from the Indians, but none of the latter could be seen on the right, left, or in the rear, so he concluded that that explanation would not answer. The speed soon brought the horseman within hail. As he neared the Rio Pecos Valley he rose in his stirrups and swung his hat in an excited manner. At that moment Fred recognized him as Sut Simpson the scout whose voice rang out as startling and clear as that of a stentor the apache's are coming the apache's are coming lone wolf will be down on you quicker than lightning end of chapter 5 read by thomas rose